0: You're listening to the podcast from Emmanuel Community Church. For more information,
1: go to emmanuelcc.co.uk. Genesis chapter three. Now the snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman. Did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the snake, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the snake said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good good The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the snake deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the snake, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. (laughs) To Adam, he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree, about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the Tree of Life. Uh, why don't I pray before Martin comes to preach for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it is living and active. Father, we come in great expectation that you would speak to us this morning. Father, give us hearts that are open to receive Your Word, and may we humbly accept all that it says. In Jesus' name, Amen. Great stuff.
0: Thanks, Chris, and thanks for the totally unfair quiz as well. I really appreciate that. <laughs> it's uh, it's it's great to be uh, great to be back here this morning, and thanks so much for coming along. We're each, each night during Passion for Life we've been thinking, as I've been saying, about what the good news of Jesus is all about. And I want to do it today by coming at it at a slightly weird um, angle. And uh, the weird angle is, is coming at it through the good news about Jesus through gardens. Now I think it's a good thing to do because in Britain we love gardens. We absolutely uh, love them and spring is definitely in the air. And it's been lovely to kind of be around such a, a sunny a sunny kind of stockport over these last few days. But we love we love gardens and i think monty don is something of a of a kind of national treasure you know with his chocolatey silky smooth voice and his novelty sized jumpers and his perfectly well behaved golden retrievers and his irresistibly irrigated soil um, everyone loves a bit of monty don everyone loves a bit of gardens so we're going to we're going to dive in as good as good kind of british people today into this whole area of gardens and think about how the gardens that we see in the bible actually tell us all about why Jesus is good news uh, for us and for this world in which we live. And we're going to look at four gardens, and the four gardens we're going to look at are um, the gardens of Eden, the garden of Noah, and you think, was that a garden? Well, you'll see. The garden of Noah, the garden of Gethsemane, and uh, the garden of Easter. And if we have time, we might throw in a little bonus ball uh, one at the end as well. But we're looking at four gardens, and, and the reason is because I think... As you look at the gardens in the Bible, they tell us really the, the true story um, about humanity. You know how every story that is good starts off, really, you know, everything's really hunky-dory, everything's great to start with, then it all goes pear-shaped, and then you need someone who will come in and sort that out and rescue us, and they come, they sort out the world, and then everything is right again. All stories that are good seem to be have those kind of four main kind of ideas. And I think the reason for that is because the true story about humanity, the story that's there in our memory trace, in our heads and our hearts, the story we long for, and um, that's explained in all those little stories in a mini version, is actually um, about a true story where actually things were good and things went wrong and we do need someone to come and rescue us and we do need someone to set the world right again. And the gardens tell us this kind of story. And it's so important because if you don't know where you've come from and you don't know where you're going, then you're completely lost. If you think about it in in terms of bookends, if you don't have those two bookends, where you've come from, where you're going, they fall down, all the books of your life fall down, and everything's a mess. And so by seeing what the true story is, where we come from and where we're going, that helps us now to to know how to live and who to trust in the world in which we're living in. So let's think about that true story through through gardens. And the first one then is is the, the Garden of Eden. And we had uh, had that read for us brilliantly then in, in Genesis um, 3. You get the Garden of Eden bit before that as well. But Eden uh, means delight. And, and what that immediately tells us is that when the God of this universe created this universe, created this world, he immediately created human beings to live in the Garden of Eden, this Garden of Delights. It shows us that God is good, that God is himself teeming with life. And wants to pour out that life and love in, into the world. And he wants to make the world delightful. And he did when he, when he created it. And when, when we talk about God, as, as, uh, when Christians talk about God, what we mean by that is that there is one God who is three persons. And you go, one God, three, how does that work? Well, one God is three persons. So there's, there's God the Father, God the Son, that's Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit. And these three persons are a one God in the sense that they are united in love for one another. And, and, that's, and that's who God is. And because God is like that, because God is always Father, Son and Spirit, have always been loving one another and have always had this relationship and have always been as family, if you like. That's why we crave love. That's why we crave good relationship. That's why we crave family, because we are created in the image of, of that God. So God created humanity then to share in his life. And so when he created the world, this God created the world, it wasn't because he wanted to get a whole bunch of things and he was lacking anything. No, God, this God said, life is so good, our relationship is so good that we want to share this. We want others, other persons to join us in this life. And so God created this world out of an explosion of joy to create a delightful world so that we could delight in him and share in his life. But what we just had read to us in Genesis 3 tells us what took place, how it all went pear-shaped, or as you see on the screen, um, pomegranate-shaped, how it all went wrong. So it started off so, so well, but it all went wrong. And that's what we heard in, in Genesis 3. What took place? Well, let me just explain who was in the garden, because this is significant as we look at all these gardens today. Firstly, you've got naked man. You remember, you've got Adam and Eve, they're absolutely starkers, and they've got no shame or whatever. They're just walking around, um, strutting their stuff, and it's all good. Life is good. And it's just a way of, of God saying, basically, they, they had no guilt, no shame whatsoever um, in, in their lives. You've got naked man, first of all. And then we were told, if you remember back in, in Genesis 3, you've got the Lord God in verse 8 so on page 5, if you, you're welcome to follow it if you want to. But on, 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 uh, in verse 8 of chapter 3, it says, The Lord God was walking in the garden. And the Bible says that no one's ever seen, um, no one's ever seen God the Father except um, God the Son. And he has revealed him to us. And so you ask, well, who is, which person is this who's walking in the garden? Well, it must be God the Son, it must be Jesus. So you've got naked man, you've got Jesus in, in the garden. Things are all well. Things are all going well. But then we get this character who emerges, who's sinister. This character called Satan, or or, or technically it's the Satan, uh, which means the adversary, the one who's against us, the one who's always accusing, the one who's wanting to bring us down and, and destroy us. And he's in the garden also. And he tries to trick Adam and Eve, the first two human beings, into walking away from God and doing their own thing. And they listen to him rather than God. And they take of, of the fruit of the tree. And when God said, you know, you must not take of this particular fruit of this tree, he had said you could take of any other fruit of any other tree because the garden was teeming, again, with, with life. And the reason he said he couldn't eat of this tree was not because God is controlling about what what we eat or is obsessed that we must eat quinoa salads or something like that. No, the reason was not because of that. He cares about our diet, really. The reason is because what he wanted people to do was to to trust him and walk with him and enjoy him in that way. But he didn't create robots, so he gave humanity the option to actually either live with him or walk uh, away from him. And Adam and Eve, so sadly... Chose to take the fruit and chose to say God, we don't want to live by your will but we want to live by ours God, not your will be done but, but my will be done and that's been the situation ever, ever since we've all said the same thing to God God, not your will be done, but mine and as you read in Genesis 3 what happens instantly is, God, is what God said would happen if they dared to eat of that fruit that actually, if they walked away from the God who's life then there would be death that entered the world If they walked away from the God who is is love, then there would be this world full of hatred. If they walked away from the God who is good, then there would be evil in in this world. If they walked away from the God of light, there would be darkness. And that's exactly what happened when humanity walked away from God. Death and darkness and destruction entered entered into the world in that very first garden. And do you remember what happens as as we heard it read to us? Um, It says there, Then, in verse 7, then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And that tells us exactly what is going on in our lives. All of a sudden, they realize that they are exposed, that God sees everything about them. And then it's not really a a physical reference as such, but it's it's there saying, although they were see physically naked, it's there to say God saw everything about the state of their lives, physically, psychologically, spiritually. They realized they were naked. And what did they do? Immediately they tried to cover things up. They tried to pretend that everything was okay, that they got it together. They started putting on these masks, if you like, to pretend that they were all okay. And again, isn't that exactly, this is the story of, of, of the human race, isn't that exactly what we see going on in our own lives? How often we put up a front, we make it look like we're really, really good, um, but actually inside we, do, we know we're doing it because we're trying to cover up the guilt and the shame. There's a, there's a psychologist who wrote an award-winning book, I mean, which psychologist hasn't, but this guy's called Steve, Steve Bidolf, and he's, uh, he's got Australian and Yorkshire blood, so you know he's going to tell things exactly as they are. And in the very first line of his book about being a man, he says this, Most men today don't have a life. Instead, what we have is an act. And he's not, not a follower of Jesus as far as I know. But he sees the very thing that the book of Genesis tells us, which is that all we do in life, and it's not just men, it's women as well, we, we cover up, we pretend that we're okay. Why? Because we don't like the fact that we've got this huge boulder of guilt and shame going in our lives. Guilt because of the things that we've done wrong. Shame because of who we are. And we don't like that and we just try to throw cloaks and, cloaks and and not cloaks, but cloaks and coats over it. We try and, and mask that. That's what the Bible says took place in the first garden. But as you know, and as I know in life, when we try and cover up and pretend that everything's okay on the outside, and actually inside we're a royal mess, when we try and pretend that we've got it together, when we try and clothe ourselves and put these fig leaves on, we know that it doesn't deal with the issue. It just masks it. And, and immediately... Jesus is there walking in the garden, and what do we hear in verse 21? Um, having having God announced the kind of judgment of, of of death and disaster that's coming now because of this. In verse 21, it says the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Immediately Jesus says, "What you need is you cannot clothe yourself. You cannot cover for your sins. You cannot deal with them. What you need is me to do that for you." And he, he kills this innocent animal, this innocent substitute, and they're clothed um, with that animal's skin. They're clothed, in, if you like, in this innocence. And it's a way of God saying, look, the whole world's gone wrong, but what it's going to need one day is for me to, to come into this world and, and sort this out. And, and, and yet God had promised in Genesis 3 that it would also be someone who would be a human who would come into the world and be this one who would rescue us and, and sort out our guilt and shame and bring us back to God. So as, as you wrap up on that first, that first garden, at the end, God is saying that because of your sin, you can't come in. Because of your sin, you can't come into the very presence of God. And at the end of Genesis 3, it says there, after God drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden, cherubim, that's types of angels, and a flaming sword, flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So because of our sin, we are separated from God and we cannot get back into that relationship with God. We cannot be made right again unless we go through that fiery, flaming sword. The only way back to God is, is through that. And yet we need him to make us right. So, you, so you're left then at the end of Genesis 3 from this first garden, the garden of Eden, going, is there any hope for the world? And then you dive into Genesis chapter 4, and don't worry, we're not going to cover the whole Bible here. But you dive, jump into Genesis chapter 4, and you see Adam and Eve's kids, Cain and Abel, these two sons. And they have a big bust up, and Cain is full of envy and anger towards his brother Abel, and he murders him. And yet the Lord God, Jesus warns him, he says, before he does that, he says that sin um, is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. And, and the picture there is like sin in our lives is there for all of it. It's like this big cat that's creeping down very low, looks like it's not going to do anything, but all of a sudden it's going to pounce and it will tear us apart. And it's crouching at our door and we must have mastery over it. But the story of Cain shows us that he didn't have that, that power in himself to deal with his sin. And actually he gave into it and he ended up murdering his brother. And we don't have the power to deal with our sin either. And it's just death and disaster that you see that God has said would happen, did happen as you go on reading through Genesis chapter 4. And then you come to this weird bit in Genesis chapter 5 where you get a list of names, and you think, is there any hope in the world when people are murdering each other and things are just an utter, utter mess? Is there any hope? And in Genesis 5 you get, this, as I say, this list of names, and you think, how on earth is that going to help us? Um, And and yet it's really interesting, because in the Hebrew, the Jewish mindset, names had real importance they, they meant things. You know, if, if you're from Essex, you might name your kids Chardonnay or Shiraz or Peanut Grigio or something. Um, anyway, you might do that kind of thing because you like the names or you really like the particular drinks. Um, but, and We often tr- pick names because we like the sound of the names. But in the Jewish mindset, they'd often pick a name because of its meaning. And You go through the list of names in Genesis 5 and they're absolutely fascinating because it starts off with Adam, whose name means man, And he has a son called Seth, and his name means appointed. And then you go through the names, and and, and listen to what it means. So Adam means man, Seth appointed. Go through the names. Man appointed, mortal sorrow, but the blessed God, Mahalalel, shall come down. Teaching is what Enoch means. His death shall bring the despairing, um, Lamech, lament, uh, shall bring the despairing rest. That's what the the name Noah uh, means. And that I think that's incredible because even there you see God, who could have wiped us all out and got rid of us all, says, "No, I want so much for people to come back to me," and He promises there that despite us bringing about death ourselves, the mortal sorrow, the blessed God is going to come down and He will teach the truth, and He will die for us to bring us, um, to bring the despairing rest. And if you're here this morning going, I despair at life, I despair at the way I am, I despair at the way the world is, then what you need is the blessed God to come down and bring you um, that life. You need need Jesus. And so Genesis 5 tells us in a world full of death and darkness, there is hope because Genesis 5 tells us in our history that one day Jesus was coming and is coming for us. But it ends there with this thing of... um, he shall bring the despairing rest or comfort. And that's what the name Noah means. And in Genesis 6, you get then um, this story through to chapter 9, all about Noah, whose name name means rest. And you start to think, wow, is he this human that was promised, but also this blessed God who's promised who will come in and rescue us? Is this this Noah? And immediately you go, perhaps it is, because um, he is called a righteous man who's living in a world which has gone completely, completely and utterly dark and, and evil, as Genesis 6 tells us. And, and as you know the story, um, there's a flood that comes on the whole world, judges the whole world. Noah, his family, and a whole bunch of animals go on board this ark to safety when the flood comes. And, and as that happens, I think in life, sometimes we, we think this. We think, you know, we think that might be a bit of a weird situation with all this kind of flood and this judgment coming. But don't we often think. What if, what if, what if, what if God just got rid of all the donuts in the world? And I don't mean the physical ones because they're incredible. But what if he just got rid of all the kind of crazy people who do evil things? If you got rid of all those people, the Putin types, if you got rid of all those and just started again with, with the good people, why? what if he what just did that? Wouldn't the world be a good place again? And often we think if we just got rid of those types of people and had those types of people, everything would be good. But the story of Noah and Noah's garden, as we are going to see, shows us that even the good people, the so-called good people, are bad. That none of us are, are good. Because once those, the flood waters around Noah's ark have, have receded more than my hairline, that's, that's an incredible amount, um, once they've receded more than my hairline, what happens is Noah then plants a garden. Listen, listen to what happens in Genesis chapter 9. If you want to follow it, um, it's in, on page 11. But it says, Noah... A man of the soil proceeded to plant a vineyard. So here's his garden. It's full of grapes. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked in backwards and covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father naked. You see, here is take two. So humanity starting again with just the good people, Noah and his family. Just the good people. Everything's going to be great now. And Noah finds himself in a garden, just like Adam was in a garden. And Noah takes of the fruit of the tree, just as Adam took of the fruit of the tree. And Noah is now naked because he's got drunk. And, and he's, he's full of guilt, full of shame. And his sons see it. And what happens? Noah can't cover his own guilt and shame. He needs someone outside of himself to do it. And his sons go and cover him up. And it shows us that the heart of humanity doesn't change. No matter if we change our location, we go on holiday, we change the way we look, we change what our our, our identity might be. Whatever we do to try and change ourselves, nothing works. Every human being, even the good, so-called good, are are bad. We all have the same same problem, that we are guilty, we are naked in in the eyes of God. And so you get, finish that garden too and you go, is there any hope then? Is there any hope for, for the world? If we're all, if we're all uh, fallen, if we're all sinful, is there any hope? And this is where we completely do a massive jump from Noah's garden all the way to another garden, garden number three in, in the Bible, the Garden of Gethsemane. And Gethsemane means oil press or olive press. And the Garden of Gethsemane was where Jesus would often hang out with his followers but it was the place he was hanging out on the night that he was betrayed by Judas. The night before he died on a cross. And, and the Garden of Gethsemane, as I say, means oil press. And it's the night that we start to see how, how Jesus, God's son, would be pressed, would be squeezed for us. His life would, would be poured out for each, each one of us. What happens in that garden I'll read a little of it from John 18 in a, in a moment. But what's in the garden? Remember back to that first garden. You had, you had the Lord God, Jesus, walking in the garden. Well, in the Garden of Gethsemane, that same Jesus is there, Lord God, walking in the garden. In that first garden, you had the Satan kind of there um, in, in the Garden of Eden. And then in John chapter 13, we're told that Satan personally entered into Judas. And we read in the Garden of Gethsemane that Judas, with Satan inside him, was in that garden as well. So again, you've got Satan there. And then you've got this weird situation in one of the, one of the biographies called Mark, where you've got this bloke who's there when all these people come to arrest Jesus and arrest his disciples. And, and there's a guy, one of the disciples, who's just wearing a linen garment, and he decides to do a runner. And as he does a runner, some of the soldiers try to grab him, and they grab his cloak, and he ends up naked. So you have naked man in the garden. Why? Well, because it actually happened. But why does Mark tell us that? Because it's a reminder of Genesis. It's a reminder that, again, we're all naked in the eyes of God. We're all guilty. We're all full of shame. And we're full of shame because we love to run away from Jesus. We love to live life without him. And so you have the Lord, you have Satan, you have naked man. But also you have the sword. Remember, the sword was like this gateway You cannot come in because of your sin. The sword was flashing and flaming back and forth. And you get the sword again here. Let me just read um, something from John's version of, of this story. It's on page 1086, if you're interested. It says, When Jesus had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now, Jesus who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas, the traitor, was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I've not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Here's the question. Why is Jesus in the garden? Well, he likes to hang up there. Yeah, we know that. But why is he in the garden? He's in the garden because he's there to restore for us what we lost in that first garden. That's why he's there. He looks at us and he sees our brokenness. He sees how rusty we are. He, see, he sees what we're like. And he says, I want to take you from that and I want to restore you. That's why he was in in the garden. And you remember how Adam in the first garden, Adam and Eve, said, God, not what you will, not what you will, but what I will be done. That's the heart of sin. That's what sin is. It's saying, God, not what you will, but I will. And here is Jesus, who has, has for all eternity been in this relationship with his father. And he had become, he's about 33 now, 33 years of age, uh, years before this. He had become a human being. God the Son had become a human being. So here is the God-man who had been promised all those times ago in the first garden. And what does he do? Well, he's lived a perfect life. He's loved God. He's loved people like no one else. He's unique. And he does the very opposite to what all of us have done. Instead of saying, Father, not your will be done, but mine. What does he say? He says, no, not my will be done, but yours. He lives the life we haven't lived. He's there to reverse the curse, to do what we can never do for ourselves. He's there to, to cover, to pay for our sins. And I love it in that John 18, because Jesus is seeing all these soldiers come, and they're coming to arrest Jesus and his disciples. And Jesus says those brilliant words. He says, don't take them, take me. And it's the same thing he says to, to each one of us. He knows where judgment is coming towards us and he says, no, don't, take, don't, uh, d- don't uh, let them take that judgment, let me take it. He says, don't take Chris, take, take me. He says, don't take Martin, take me. He says, don't take Shiraz, just go back for those names again, take me. Whatever your name, he says, no, let me take your place. Let me deal with your sin because it's the only way you can be forgiven. So he says, don't take them, take me. And then remember, Peter drew a sword. And that, that's always a, a schoolboy error. He's a fisherman. So he's not exactly that accomplished, a, a sword. So it's a bit like someone like Prince Charles, um, kind of picking up a kebab. Um, you know, you know, he's got no idea how to use it, uh, what to do with it. And, and as he goes do it, it's just going to be a complete and utter mess. Um, and it's the same with Peter. So he, A fisherman picks up the sword. He's like, I've no idea how to use it. And he just lashes out and he slices off this bloke's ear makes a right kind of pig's ear of, of that as well and, and Jesus incredibly although all these people are coming out against him what does he do? he picks up the guy's ear and he puts it back on and he heals this, this guy who's come to arrest him Jesus is incredible but that's not just the incredible bit here's the more incredible bit Jesus says these words Jesus commanded Peter put your sword away shall I not drink the cup the father has given me you see the cup was this cup of judgment. It was all over the Old Testament that the cup would be a cup of judgment, that all of us will have to drink that judgment to the dregs for ourselves. And Jesus is kind of mixing his metaphors here with the sword and the cup being the same thing. He's saying the only way for us to come back to the Father, the only way for us to come back to God, is if he takes the sword of judgment, if he drinks in our judgment for us. That's the only way we can be forgiven and be made right with God. And it's all happening in this garden because he knows that's the only way we can come back so there's garden number three and then we come on to the fourth and, and, and final or maybe slightly penultimate garden the fourth garden the garden of Easter and you think what garden of Easter what are you on about um, let, me, let me explain in, in John chapter 19 it says there at the place where Jesus was crucified there was a garden and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. So the day after this happened in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was, was he was that night, he was tried badly, wrongly. He was uh, brutally condemned to, to die on a cross and go through absolutely immense torture physically. But on that Easter, as Jesus gets crucified on a cross, gets put to death on a cross, close to where he is being crucified, there is a garden. And that's where he's going to be buried. And I find that fascinating because he's outside the garden when he gets crucified. The book of Hebrews puts it this way. It says that he was crucified outside the gate. Remember, that flaming sword is the gate. Jesus, as he's dying on the cross, is outside the gate. He's outside the garden. And he's outside to join us in our estrangement from God. He's outside to join us in that so that he can bring us back through the garden. But the only way in, remember, is through the flaming sword. The only way in is is through judgment. And all the details that go on, there's millions of them. I'll just pick out a few of them. When Jesus dies on the cross, remind us about what we lost in that first garden. Remind us about where we were at in that first garden and where we've been ever since. Because as Jesus dies on the cross, he's stripped naked. And you think, why? Well, it's partly, of course, because that's one of the, the grim ways the Romans treated people here. They put to death on the cross. But there's a bigger reason. The reason why he's naked is because he's there to represent you and I, naked, full of shame and guilt before God. Jesus died on a wooden cross. And, and I often used to think uh, for quite a long time, why, why did Jesus die on a cross? Why wasn't he put to death, you know, centuries later on an electric chair? Why wasn't he just put a bullet put through him? Why wasn't he blown up by a bomb? Why, why die on a, on a Roman cross? Well, Peter, when he talks about it in his writings, he talks about the cross also being a tree. Why does Jesus die on a tree? It's because what all went wrong for all of us as human beings is when we took from the tree we shouldn't have. When we said, God, not your will, but my will. When we tried to grab for God's position, that's when everything went wrong. And that's why it's wrong in our lives today and what's wrong in this world. And so Jesus dies on a tree because he's paying for what we did wrong at at the tree. That's why he's there. And instead of Him grabbing like we have, what's he doing with his arms stretched out wide for you? He's giving. He's giving everything. This is why Jesus is such good news. He does the opposite. He's there to reverse the curse. He's there to pay for for our sins. It all happens when he gets crucified at a Jewish feast of Passover, which was all about an innocent substitute dying in the place of the guilty. And as that week of events was happening, Jesus there died the innocent one for us the guilty. It's all just so beautifully kind of built together. This this, this story that God has intertwined and, and 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 promised and predicted and then fulfilled in Jesus. And he's gone to great lengths to write this huge, brilliant true story because he wants us to play our part in it, which is to come to him and, and enjoy the happy ending and the happy ever after that there is in Jesus. A little time out as as we are thinking now, as we're thinking now about, you know, maybe you're here this morning, and you're going, do, do I want to trust this God? Do I want this God to be at the centre of my life? I, I think when you look at Jesus, you've got to go, surely, yeah, that's what God is like, absolutely. I think the trouble is, so often we have loads of different concepts of God in our heads. We think of him like maybe the Werb's original grandfather offering toffees, you know, just like a nice, nice old granddad rocking in his chair. Um, sometimes we think of him as this kind of psycho, kind of Thanos-type God from the Avengers. He just wants to destroy, and is just brutal and, and mean. Sometimes we think of God as this black hole God who just wants to suck the life out of the world and suck the life out of you. But that's not what we see in Jesus. There's a, a guy who's a, he's a bit like a Tom, Tom McLeish, a bit of a boffin. Um, he's, a, he's a PhD in science and a PhD in theology as well. Um, but he was also a chaplain, a guy called Tom Torrance, in the Second World War. And he was on um, in Italy at the time. And a 19-year-old lad, a soldier, was, was there dying. He had half an hour or so left to live. And, and Tom Torrance, as the chaplain, was called over to come and, 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 and just be there with the guy and, and, and listen to him and talk with him. And the soldier, this dying soldier, age 19, said this. He said, Padre, father, chaplain, Padre. Is God really like Jesus? You see, that question was so important because he's thinking: if I'm about to die now and go into eternity, if God is not like Jesus, if He's like an ogre God, if He's some kind of bad dude who's just like full of just I don't know, just wanting, wanting to, wanting to cane me, then I this I don't want to go. But if God is like Jesus, then I am more than happy to go through death. I want to go, um, if, if if that is the case. So, Padre, is God really like Jesus? Tom Thomas replied, I assured him as he lay upon the ground, with his life ebbing away, that God is indeed really like Jesus, and that there is no unknown God behind the back of Jesus for us to fear. To see the Lord Jesus is to see the very face of God. And so the, the reason we've been looking at a Jesus like this is because that's how you see what God is really like. It's how you, Jesus says, if you see me, you see my Father. We're just just like one another. And I love that what Tom Torrance said, there's no unknown God behind the back of Jesus. It's not that Jesus is this great, brilliant, loving, perfect uh, person, but but behind him is some crazy ogre God. No, no, God the Father behind Jesus is exactly the same as Jesus. He's exactly that same loving, immensely self-giving kind of God. So that, that is what God is like. And it's as you look at Jesus dying on the cross that you go, this is God and God is like this. And you think, if God would give up everything for us, then surely I can trust him. Surely I can trust him with all my life. Surely I can trust him to forgive me. Surely I can trust him when he says that he knows what's right and what's good for my life. Surely I can do that because he gave up everything uh, for me. You see, Jesus is the king of the universe. And when he died on the cross, that was the king of the universe being enthroned. Remember, he got that crown of thorns pressed around his brow why because the curse of going against god was thorns in this life thorns and thistles everywhere and jesus takes that curse for us but remember when he died there were two people either side of him one of them was laughing at him the whole time and then died the other started laughing laughing at him and then realized man what a fool i've been i need this jesus and this other guy came to realize that jesus is really the king of the universe the one he needs and he says, jesus will you remember me when you come into your kingdom he realizes Jesus is going to beat death, go through it, and come out the other side. Will you be my king? He says, will you be with me, Jesus? Can I be with you? And what does Jesus respond? Those beautiful words. He says, today, I assure you, you will be with me in paradise. And the word paradise was a, was a Persian word. We talked about Persian words the other night for some reason. But it was a Persian word. Um, that meant garden. So isn't it interesting that Jesus says, today you will be with me in the garden. Today you'll be back where you belong. If you come to me, then I will take you through death and I will bring you into my kingdom forever. You will live forever. You'll be with me in the garden. As as, as we wrap up, Jesus died for us all, bearing our sins, the innocent for the guilty. He was then buried in, in a grave and that grave was in the garden. But what happens? If he just stays dead, how can we have that relationship with God? How can he bring us to the Father if he's dead? He can't. But he needs to come to life. And it says, it says in, uh, in all the Gospels accounts that Jesus, incredibly, three days after being dead, raised a new life. He stood up again. He walked again in, in the garden. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had been laid. And on that Easter morning, uh, on this beautiful kind of you know, spring kind of morning, as the sun rose, Jesus rose from the dead. He stood up again. And the first witnesses of him being alive were these ladies. And one of them was a lady called Mary Magdalene. And you get this beautiful kind of moment where she's like, well, she's distraught. That is not a beautiful thing. She's distraught. But the beautiful moment comes when then she sees this person who she supposes is what? The gardener. And what she said was so, so true. Because here was the gardener of gardeners. Here was someone way back at the Don. Here was the true gardener of this world. Here was Jesus. And she clung on to Jesus. And she kind of poured out her life and gave it to, to Jesus there and then. And, and I wonder this morning, is that where you're at? Are you doing a Mary Magdalene this morning and saying, man, I realise I always try and cover up. I've got guilt and shame that cannot go. But Jesus bore that for me. He took that, sh- that burden off my life so that if I trust him, I can be forgiven. If you're at that place where, of Mary Magdalene this morning, you go, I want to walk with this Jesus and be brought back into the garden. Then why not pray this morning? You know, the Bible ends with this is the bonus book, the fifth garden, I won't say much about this. It ends in a garden. It says the whole it says when one day we'll all be judged according to whether we trusted Jesus or not. And the sad thing is that, that for those who say, I want to be away from Jesus, then we will be forever outside the garden, ever cut off in the darkness and, and in a place of horror. And the Bible, you know, the word for that is hell. And the Bible says that's where we will go unless we trust Jesus. And and God doesn't want any of us to go there. He has no desire for people to perish like that. But the Bible ends then by saying, for all those who do trust Jesus, he will come back to this world and he will renew it and will transform it. All sin and suffering and sorrow will be gone, completely eradicated. And the Bible's picture, is lots of pictures in Revelation, but one of them is that this whole world will then be the garden. It will be the place where God is, the place where everyone who's been forgiven and all that horrible sin of ours is completely gone. And we live in peace and it will be absolutely phenomenal. And that last book of the Bible, which talks about that garden, um, really, towards the end, has these words. And it's your invitation um, this morning to come to Jesus. It says this, the Spirit, God the Spirit, and the Bride, that's those who trust in Christ, the Christians. The Spirit and the Bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. You know, coming to Jesus costs you nothing. He's a free gift for you. But on another level, it costs you everything because the life is no longer yours. It's not for you to live as you please anymore. It's for you to live with Jesus um, at the centre. And that is incredible. That is the best, best life um, ever. But he says, if you are thirsty this morning, if you desire, come to receive him. Come and have him. Um, He's given his life for you, paying for your sin. Will you have him this morning? Will you have him for the rest of your life? If that's what you want to do, why not pray this prayer for you with me? I've, I've put this uh, a kind of a suggested prayer on the screen. There's no, nothing magical about the words whatsoever, but there's something magical about Jesus, something incredible about him, and he wants you to come home. So if you want to do that, why not pray these words? And I'll, and I'll pause after each sentence so you can echo those words in your own heart and mind. Let's pray. Dear Father God, I'm so sorry for my sin. Thank you that Jesus lived the life I haven't lived. Died in my place. And rose from the dead. Please forgive me. And take away my guilt and shame. I now receive Jesus as my Lord and my Savior. In Jesus' name, Amen. If you've prayed that prayer or want to talk to me or Chris or Jamie or one of the other guys, um, then please, please feel free to do that at the end. But um, thank you, thank you so much for, for your time. Thank you for listening. Over to Chris, or that way. You have been listening to the podcast from Emmanuel Community
1: Church. To find out more about us, go to emmanuelcc.co.uk.